You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, welcome back to the conservative conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. Welcome back to the new year. Unbelievably, it's January 2nd, 2018. I can't believe it's 2018 already. Gosh, last year was probably the quickest year of my life. I don't know about you guys, but as I get older and just embroiled in work and kids and gosh, the time just flies on a person, Um, but really refreshed from this vacation. It's probably one of the first times in recent memory I feel just positive, so much positive energy coming back. Uh, I know I'm dubbed the prophet of lamentations by both my detractors and my supporters, but I actually have a lot of good news. And while we're certainly going to cover in the coming years all the failures of Congress, of this administration, of our system of governance, all the positive ideas we have, I think it's important to first reflect on just the last couple of weeks that the president has really ended the year on a positive trajectory. You know, for much of the year, we focused on the the fact that we're getting all the liabilities of Trump's persona and character, but really none of the benefits. But I think that has changed a lot. Uh, many of us thought after Steve Bannon left the White House, forget it, he would just succumb to the liberal mentality of his daughter, of his advisors, some of his cabinet picks. The truth is, he's really headed in the opposite direction. I'm going to link to in show notes, there's a good Axios article. They have great sources there, by the way. Uh, demonstrating how Trump is, uh, you know, he's really moving to the right on a lot of our issues, despite his cabinet. Now, obviously, we still have the challenges I talked about all last year between his lack of attention to detail. Sometimes he gets off message and off top topic, his terrible liberal advisors he's got to get rid of. Hopefully he will in the coming year. And then the terrible GOP leadership in Congress, you put that all together And it's hard to convert some of his good intuition that he puts out there on social media into actual policy outcomes. But nonetheless, I mean, whether it's him talking about global warming or cutting off aid to Pakistan, immigration, he's really been on message from what I've heard uh, from people in in meetings with him. And he certainly reflected that in his New Year's uh, or over the New Year's weekend, his tweet on the need to go after chain migration and build the wall. So things are getting, are looking up. And then obviously on Iran, he's been been amazing on that. And we're going to bring in our special guest today to talk about Iran. Um, but I just <clears throat> hope you guys all had a great weekend. I know I certainly uh, loved it, even though I'm sore as anything I spent all week just uh, working on my home improvement projects. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about Trump's tweet about global warming, that we could all use some global warming now. When it was 10 degrees outside, I had to, had to keep washing my hands from all that painting and washing off the tools and everything. You know, some people, their hands are like sandpaper or they, they look like they got into a bar fight all winter. Their hands are ripped up. I usually don't have those problems, but gosh, the, the timing to do all this painting just during the coldest period of the year. 
And meanwhile, my wife tells me, well, now you know what it's like to wash dishes all day. So, <laughs> you know, anyway, um, just really enjoyed my time off. And like I said, I'm all refreshed. I, I really feel a lot of positive energy to take the conservative conscience, conservative review, now powered by Westwood One. So welcome to all of our Westwood audiences. We look forward to bringing on new advertisers, new audience, and really honing in on a lot of the issues that people don't focus on, that the political class misses, and even the issues that they do indeed focus on, the angles that they miss, the important details they miss, a long-form discussion that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. That's why we have the conservative conscience here. And, you know, it's funny, during the sleepy holiday weekend, really holiday week, where the news cycle was thankfully very light, of course, every year something has to blow up. And out of nowhere, we have the biggest opportunity ever for regime change since the Mullahs took over Iran almost 40 years ago. Um, and these aren't just economic in nature. You have people willing to overthrow their government, willing to do it for us. We don't need a heavy-handed military intervention that costs, uh, costs us everything and gains us nothing like we've done in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And unfortunately, by the way, Trump is sending more troops to Afghanistan. But what he, and, and we're going to talk about that, you know, what he's doing wrong on some issues, kind of incongruent with some of his better judgment. But what he is doing right on Iran, I really wanted to delve into that before we really kick off the week with some of the domestic policy stuff. I know there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about on health care, on immigration, on taxes, welfare, spending, the budget uh, deadline coming up on January 20th. Make this your one-stop shop for all of the issues that matter to the importance of our country. We're going to have everything, but we're going to start off with foreign policy. And I want to bring you a special guest. You know, you're going to hear in the next couple of days many voices on cable news, thumb-sucking pundits in the media, both really conservative and liberal media, from people that really don't know what they're talking about. They haven't followed the Iranian issue very carefully, and suddenly they know everything. And I've always pledged to bring you guys voices that you're not going to hear elsewhere, but nonetheless are actually smarter and more on point than what you're exposed to on the typical cable shows and just real in-depth, smart discussions. And I figured, what better way to kick off our new year? than to bring in our own in-house national security correspondent and foreign policy correspondent, Jordan Schachtel. Uh, he works with us here at Conservative Review. Very good stuff on foreign policy. You want to follow him on Twitter, by the way, as well, not to miss a beat on this entire issue. And with no further ado, it's an honor to bring Jordan in. Hey, Jordan, how are you? I'm great, Daniel. It's good to be with you. Happy New Year. Wow. Well, you know, every, like, like I told my audience, every uh, New Year, we usually have a quiet week at the end of December, you know, between Christmas and New Year's, and something blows up. Something big blows up. I was busy doing my paint job, painting most of my upstairs, and I saw my phone blowing up with this stuff, and I go and grab my phone, getting paint all over it, and I'm shocked to just see out of nowhere 
um, not just protests, but people brazenly attacking police stations as if they don't care about the Iranian regime anymore. And that told me this is pretty serious. If you could just kind of start off the discussion with who are these protesters? You know, what does it represent? Um, you know, where are they coming from and why now? Why, why now more than any other time since the 2009 Green, uh, Green Revolution? Yeah, so in 2009, um, hundreds of thousands, if not over a million Iranians, rose up against the regime and protested for more freedoms, for economic freedom, um, you know, to get away from their crazy expansionist foreign policy. And they were brutally suppressed. And uh, fast forward to 2017 now, and we live in an age where technology is even more easily accessible. And, you know, all these Iranians have a smartphone, even though it's uh, censored by the government. And there's real uh, there's a real opportunity here for the Iranian people to affect change on their regime. I think, you know, they were sold for a while on the promises that maybe the nuclear deal would bolster the economy in Iran and, you know, would help with their way of life because you had these Obama officials saying, you know, that Iran wasn't going to use the financial windfall from the Iran deal where they got tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, We were promised that Iran was going to use this money solely on domestic consumption, that they would boost the economy, boost trade with the West, you know, all these promises that they would westernize. And none of this happened. Um, Iran has now continued to support uh, countless terrorist organizations throughout the Middle East. They spent most of the money on Hezbollah, on Hamas, on waging war in Syria, killing hundreds of thousands of people for no reason other than to protect uh, the dictator Bashar Assad. Um, And the Iranian people have seen no benefit from an Islamic theocracy ruling over them. Uh, there are people with a history, uh, a recent history, only you know, a generation ago, um, Iranians were walking the streets um, without hijabs, and the mullahs were people that were kind of laughed at. And then, of course, in 1979, everything changes with the Islamic Revolution, and now there's a government that does not answer to the people. Um, you know, they're in- interested in exporting this Shiite uh, caliphate as far and wide as possible. And to the credit of the Iranian people, they're walking into the streets now to show that, you know, they don't support this and that, um, you know, now is time for a change. And the U.S. policy should do everything it can, in my opinion, to try and support this movement. You know, it's kind of interesting, some of the observations you made about what the people in Iran are feeling. It's similar to what we complain about here as well. Um, You know, typically in the past, a lot of these Arab Spring movements, they were fueled by, you know, just this general, a lot of them were Muslim Brotherhood-inspired uprisings. Um, you know, elites in the West liked them because they were they felt they were an opportunity for Western-style democracies. But there's really something very different here. This is almost similar to what you're seeing with Brexit, uh, the American election of, of Donald Trump, where there's a certain nationalism in the country itself where it's like, wait a minute. Why we say this at home? We say this all the time. Why are we rebuilding Kabul and Baghdad? 
um, and giving money to Lebanon, but you know, not doing stuff we need to be doing at home. So I sense a similar thing here. We assume they're all for jihad because it's you know Muslim countries they all want jihad. But a, as you noted, I mean, obviously they're it's this is not an Arab country. Um, it's Persian. They have a history um, that is more open to Western, somewhat Western values. Um, sure, sure, it's not going to be a Western democracy, but they don't exactly want a jihad just you know with all this money expended on foreign ex- escapades the same way we have our foreign escapades um and, and it's funny because as we predicted we were right about the iran deal and the iranian people see it that way that the windfall of the relief of sanctions allowed them to increase their uh the their funding of hezbollah from 200 million a year to 800 million a year and the people want that money spent there so my question to you is, all those ingredients together, do they point to an outcome that is more auspicious, at least from our perspective, than the other uprisings where you pretty much just saw you know, Islamists fill the vacuum? What would you expect to see of any, you know, any outcome? Let's say this would reach a tipping point, and A, how do we make that tipping point? And, and push the regime out. But B, how do we ensure, why is this different that, you know, you won't just have some sort of ISIS-like group take over? Yeah, so what I think differentiates the this Iranian uprising from the Arab Spring, and you and I and others who have who observed the Arab Spring recognized very early on, I'd say, that this was more so an Islamist revolt against um, in the in the Arab world, it was an Islamist revolt against um, you, you know strongmen, dictators, or monarchies. This was not uh, a freedom movement, as um, reported in much of the legacy media. And I think that a lot of people um, missed that, and that's the big difference between that and the Iranian People's Movement. Um, you know, they're they're opposing. The Islamists. They are not the Islamists opposing, you know, the secular dictators. Um, and Iran, of course, has a proud history and a people that want to modernize. Um, even, you know, in the pre-1979 era, they were building skyscraper, the scrapers. They were innovating with technology, uh, you know, transportation infrastructure. They were ahead of the curve in a lot of aspects. And, you know, now it's very sad to see a, a regressive Iran and, you know, they want to seemingly get rid of that now. Um, so that's the key difference between that and the Arab Spring. In the Arab Spring, they wanted more fundamentalism. And if you look at what the people on the ground during the Arab Spring actually said throughout most of the North African and Middle Eastern nations, this was reflected um, in their words, if you just go back and look into it, um, you know it's really sad that the the media was reporting on it so dishonestly, and how the Obama administration was encouraging this while um, you know also propping up the regime in Iran. It's just a total travesty. But that that's really the big difference. Is one was an Islamist revolt, and this is clearly a rejection of Islamism. Uh, you've seen it with their chants in the streets. They're chanting, you know, death to the supreme leader. Um, they're chanting even anti-Islam slogans, anti-Shiite uh, slogans. They're they're fed up with 
the Islamist theocracy in the capital. And I think that's an important point because a lot of people in the media that are trying to be, a, you know, basically a subtle apologist or even not so subtle apologist for the Iranian regime just to defend Obama's legacy, which is so sad because this should be a bipartisan moment where, I mean, everyone should cheer this on. Uh, you know, part of the thing is they're trying to create this false dichotomy. Well, all right. It's not about, you know, fighting the Islamic regime, really. It's just they're upset with domestic policy and the economic uh, situation there right. with the price of food. But it, it really ties together because I think they recognize that when you turn it into a backwards Islamic republic and you focus on exporting Islam rather than importing, um, you know, prosperity – then you have harsh economic conditions, and that's that's kind of the problem. But but you know again, like like you mentioned, not to veer into this, you know, neoconservative promoting democracy everywhere. This is not necessarily going to need to lead to democracy. We don't necessarily need that. We don't necessarily want that for them. For our interests, we just want the end of an Islamic republic that, unlike some of these other theaters we're involved in, that are really there. They're horrible, like the Taliban or, you know, the groups in Iraq and Syria and God knows what we're doing in in Africa. They really threaten us. They have threatened us. Um, Could you talk about some of the history for for, for our people that are just a little skeptical about getting involved um, because we've had so many failed adventures? And we're not even talking about military intervention here. Um, why this is different, why this is the consummate threat. I would say this is the Jenga point of foreign policy, that you take this block away, much of the Islamic terrorism falls, um, why it affects our security, why it affects us, and you know why we should care about it. You have to go back. Uh, well, you made a great point about how we need to get back to promoting U.S. interests, and you know, regardless we do sympathize with the Iranian people's struggle. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's up to what we determine to be, you know, what they call America first these days. What is in the American interest? And to go back to, um, you know, why Iran's terrorist regime is so important um, in, in the middle of discussing U.S. foreign policy, uh, you have, probably have to go back to Iran's um, right after the revolution when they committed those horrific um, bombings at the Marine Embassy with Hezbollah in the 80s and um, move up to current day where you see Iran's footprints um, everywhere throughout the Middle East. They've, um, you know, they're responsible largely for propping up the the civil war in Syria, which has been, you know, of course, a diplomatic mess for us. They, without, um, you know, they completely destabilized the country of Lebanon which is supposed to be a U.S. ally, but as you and I know, uh, they're basically run by Hezbollah now. Um, Iran quadrupled Hezbollah's budget last year and has enabled Hezbollah to take over both politically and military, uh, the influence in the country. So, you know, without an Iranian regime, you wouldn't see a Lebanon controlled by Hezbollah. Uh, You wouldn't see a civil war in Yemen, most likely, the Houthis would end up losing because they would lose their aid. Um, our you know, greatest Middle Eastern ally in Israel would not be terrorized by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad because other than Qatar, which is another separate issue, um, they Iran is the chief funder of a lot of the Palestinian jihadi movements. Um, elsewhere, they, you know, they 
have child soldiers in Afghanistan, another huge issue for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you know, Iran is working to corrupt the government in Iraq, which has been a huge headache for us. Um, Iran asserts influence over the president um, and other key Iraqis. They crush, uh, you know, dreams of Kurdish independence, which would make for a great U.S. ally. So it's it, it's so many things that you could point to um, discussing the nefarious influence of the Islamic regime in Tehran. If it wasn't there, you'd see a huge, huge um, pro-America boon for um, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And, you know, our interests would certainly be better reflected without the theocratic regime there. No, no, no doubt about it. And, and, and the big thing on your list that a lot of people forget, the most recent thing, um, you know, obviously they have the blood of, you know, several hundred of our soldiers on their hands from Lebanon up to as many as a thousand in, in, directly or indirectly through the IEDs in Iraq created by um, and, and set by the Shiite militias controlled by the IRGC. But also they captured our naval vessel and its crew in, in what would in any other era been considered an act of war. Obama did nothing about it. We have a score to settle with them, meaning all the things we get involved in is some sort of munch, mud hut munchkin dancing around with an AK-47 in some obscure hill in the Hindu Kush, you know, can't hurt us. Um, some of these African conflicts, again, you know, I wish we could save the world. We can't. But, but here they actually have attacked us. They will. They have, yeah. you know— Next to North Korea, they're the biggest strategic threat. And unlike North Korea, which is it's serious, um, but they, they kind of come from a Marxist ideology. They don't believe in an afterlife. So there's a little bit less of a, a suicidal tendency here. Um, you know, gosh, once they get nuclear weapons, there's nothing you can do about that because they don't fear anything. The, having just kicking them while they're down you, you look at the risk versus return matrix. So what's our input in a, in a given involvement? Is it soft power? Is it stuff that doesn't cost us anything using the tools of statecraft? Or is it heavy, heavy military occupation that costs trillions of dollars in lives like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan? And then what's the outcome? You know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I'd say it's worse. Afghanistan doesn't really yeah. matter. Iraq, it's certainly worse. Um, here, you can't get worse than them. And B, we get this for free if we just make the right choices. So what are some of those choices, those tools of statecraft that, that if you were advising National Security Council, Mattis, State Department folks, what would you tell them to do right now to get the biggest bang for the buck to A, ensure that the regime to- is toppled and B, to ensure that we reco- recover the fumble and – kind of have a sissy dynamic, which was the one success versus all the other failures. Yeah, right. So a, a, lot, a lot of the, what has been lost in the conversation about Iran over the years, of course, is as you referred to, you know, we don't, a lot of people have dishonestly um, placed this conflict between, you know, full out warfare and doing nothing. Um, a lot of these Obama funkies are saying, you know, if you, if you don't, if you do nothing, that's the best case because anything else means war, occupation, blah, blah, blah. But we know that's nonsense, right? We know there's a lot of these instruments of power that we could utilize to um, 
not necessarily manipulate the situation in Iran to our benefit, but, you know, boost the protesters, do what we can to delegitimize the regime. Because before the Obama era, the policy has always been, you know, we do not recognize this regime as a legitimate government. And, you know, that's where the Obama administration got particularly radical was when they effectively recognized that Iran the regime, the theocracy, the dictatorship is here to stay. So what we could do, um, there, there's so many things we can do. Uh, President Trump has, you know, waged his own social media campaign, um, just stressing, you know, that we support um, the protesters. Uh, that You know, it's very important for them to hear from the leader of the free world that we have their back. Um, additionally, we can we we have the best technology companies in the world, and you have Iranian protesters in the streets using applications like Signal, Telegram, and you have Iranian authorities trying to block um, their use of it through their firewalls, through their government censorship. And we can work with you know these big companies like Google and uh, others to you know perhaps create loopholes for the protesters to help them in uh, communicating for their protest. So that's very important, you know, encouraging communications, helping them fight back against the regime. And then when you're getting to the kinetic side of saying, you know, a debate can be had in Washington about, you know, whether to support um, maybe an intermediary, you know, this is not something that has been addressed yet. But if the protest gets to the point where you think, hey, you know, maybe they have a shot at at uh, overthrowing the regime, and we can tip the scales a little. Then you get to, you know, the discussion about um, maybe, you know, helping supply them with uh, aid and arms in a, in a more direct manner. But right now, I think, you know, you, you wage a, a serious messaging campaign. Uh, you completely delegitimize the regime and support the protesters. You know, as the leader of the free world, America has a huge role to play in this, and we need to stay morally consistent because, unfortunately, um, a lot of the Europeans just basically refuse to play this game. You know, they have financial interests in trading with Iran. They're not interested, and the Iranian people need to see that we have their back. Yeah, and Airbus, which is one of the biggest uh, European companies, you know, they're kind of like the American Boeing, and uh, they, they have tons of contracts with them, selling them hundreds of of uh, commercial airliners since the Iran deal permitted it. So they're they're obviously not saying anything. I want to pick up on that line of thought. What are some of the other geopolitical moving parts here, reactions from other people in the world? You know, it's funny that Trump gets accused of being a puppet of Putin. But ironically, I mean, Obama was the ultimate puppet because Iran is the biggest uh, client state of, um, I wouldn't say a client state, I mean, it's more serious a client state of Iran, but Iran is certainly backed and funded and instigated in the background by Russia and China. And Obama obsequiously, you know, just followed every every demand of Putin on that issue. And then here, Trump is just going right after um, one of Putin's biggest pawns. Have we heard anything from Putin? And if you just have any comments? Yeah, the Russian yeah. government... Um, like I said, you know, it's uh, it, that's why it's so important for America to lead, because the Russian government, of course, is very close to Iran. And I read a statement from 
Russia yesterday saying basically that, you know, they don't want anyone messing in the, the internal affairs of Iran and that they want the government to sort this out and people have the right to protest, but they don't have the right to riot. And, you know, they're, they're like many of the mainstream media outlets there, the Russian government is treating this like, um, you know, it's complete moral equivalence, like the protesters don't have legitimate grievances and that the government of Iran is legitimate. So Russia has uh, come to firmly support Iran and, you know, of course, has a heavy hand in economic relationships with them and has no interest in overthrowing the regime because uh, Iran is a critical partner for them against America. So, you know, this whole it's another shot at the uh, Trump-Russia narrative, because if Trump was really uh, a Putin shill, um, a secret spy for Putin or whatever the media is calling him these days, uh, he would not be advocating for the protesters in Iran at all. Oh, no, no doubt about it. And and that's the beauty of it. That's why I call this kind of the Jenga point of foreign policy. Uh, You know, we've spent a long time last year on this broadcast looking for the Jenga points on domestic policy. There's so many things wrong. There's on, on so many economic issues, fiscal issues, systemic government issues. And whether it's judicial reform, how we look at health care, taxation, we looked for one or two policies that will completely remake everything and set off a domino effect. And I'm, I'm thinking that on a foreign policy level, <clears throat> really everything revolves around Iran because you yeah. know, all the problems we're, we're suffering now with Iraq and everything is because – you know, we're getting involved in certain conflicts that is always a windfall to Iran, which is the biggest problem. And it's always this Iranian proxy, this Iranian proxy. Once you cut off the head of the snake there, uh, you know, it, it solves most of the Islamic problems. It really puts Qatar and Turkey on the ropes because they're isolated. Uh, you know, China and and Russia lose their biggest pawn in the region and it completely remakes the map, no? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you you see this. We used to, only about a, as recently as, you know, less than a decade ago, we had huge problems with what was going on in Saudi Arabia. And I'm not saying that Saudi Arabia and a lot of these Sunni straits are free from fundamentalism. You know, it's far from the truth. But their governments have expressed an interest in partnering with the U.S., to modernize, you know, secularize, welcome the world. Um, and it's created an opportunity for us to really focus on these nefarious actors, Iran, Qatar, Turkey, you know, the three big ones in the Islamic world now. And if we could, um, you know, knock off the Iranian regime uh, through this protest movement, it would be just fantastic for the U.S. You know, there's no bigger issue in the Islamic world than Iran, which, of course, is you know getting closer and closer each day to developing a nuclear bomb. Uh, they're connected to every, every single issue we have in our foreign policy, you know, whether it's North Korea, because they're trading nuclear technology. Um, and as I talked about before with Afghanistan, the rest of the Middle East, all the civil wars that we're dumping hundreds of billions of dollars into. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. And Iran is, is the number one issue. You know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking, 
another ancillary benefit of this, if if we would successfully go all in, and when I say go all in, I, I don't mean troops, because again, we know that putting our troops in, in Muslim countries, even a non-Arab country like Iran, is not, it, it, history has shown it just doesn't work um, unless you're just trying to do, um, you know, a hit and run strike. You, you're just never going to put those babies together. But when you use that soft power to support a popular uprising, do you think that would have any bearings on the people in North Korea? That's the other, you know, again, the two biggest enemies we have, destabilizing the world, North Korea and Iran, in which yes. everyone, everyone's yeah, scratching absolutely. their heads. You know what I mean? Like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? Do we have to bomb them? But again, in North Korea, the best thing would be also for the people to rise up against the regime. Do you think that's possible if this would succeed? Yeah, you know, the people in North Korea are a whole new level of propagandized, and I think that's the big issue there. But... Um, what we could do if there was successful regime change in Iran, North Korea might recalculate, you know, their strategy and see that, you know, we're not here to in- enable them to have a free path to a nuclear weapon anymore and just point to the Iran example. But yet the one distinction between North Korea and Iran is that Iranians have um, more access and, you know, have been able to create innovative tools through the Iranian regime's connections to, um, you know, Western social media, they've been able to kind of explore more of the world where, unfortunately, North Korea is still very much on lockdown. Um, And, of course, I agree on on both fronts that, um, you know, American invasion and occupation is not at all the answer in in either case, um, other than maybe, you know, targeting their nuclear facilities or something like that. Um, it would definitely be a, a fool's errand and, you know, could potentially turn either population against us. So, you know, I think both of us would heavily advise against that at this point. Sure, sure. But I mean, when you look at base, you know, contrasting what we've already done in all other places, look at Gaddafi in Libya. So there, the guy wasn't a yeah. great guy, but he was on a positive trajectory. And, uh, you know, certainly we we we, uh, we fumbled that. And you look around the map, we have that same problem. The one area where I see a success where it was no thanks to anything our government did happen naturally was in Egypt. And Egypt is an Arab country, but it's more a little bit more homogenous and it has a history of being a nation state. When you look at Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, they are just complete dumpster fires. There's nothing we could really do at this point. Um, but the best thing to do is is to support the uprising in a place like Iran, which does have a very clear history and proclivity, really, um, to embrace, I wouldn't say Western democracy, but, you know, more modernization and just uh, at least moving away from jihad, which is all we need. Um, again, we, we don't care for our purposes. Obviously, I'd love to have uh, Western democracies everywhere if we could, but it's not it's certainly not feasible. No, that, that's a good that's a good point to expand upon, um, because in countries where there's particular nationalistic or more so even patriotic um, opinions about their country, that's when you tend to see, you know, the more of a secularization and more of um, an alignment with American interests, whether it's Egypt, uh, you know, the UAE, Saudi, even Saudi Arabia. If you go on social media, you know, they're talking about their country. They're not talking about the Ummah 
or the Arab world, you know, they're very focused on, you know, doing what's best for themselves. And when countries do that, we can have a relationship with them based on, you know, mutual understanding. And, you know, to give the president credit, that's what his national security strategy is all about, you know, recognizing that these countries have interests. And we have an opportunity here um, throughout much of the Middle East when these countries recognize that, yes, we're a nation and we should do what we can to support our nation and not become part of these, you know, crazy, whether, you know, there's Marxist movements or Islamist movements, when they're focused on the country themselves, that's, I think, where you could point to throughout the Middle East and throughout the world where America has particular interests in, uh, you know, supporting these movements. Yeah, you have this Persian nationalism there. I mean, it's something that you're never going to find in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan because these countries don't really exist. They're just a bunch of sectarian um, tribal regions. Wow. It never really existed as a country before World War One. And there's nothing to put together. And, and it, it's still a problem to this day what exactly we're doing. But, it, I mean, it, it, it's almost like, you know, would you invest a dollar to make a million dollars versus investing a million dollars when at best you could make a dollar and more likely you're going to lose your shirt, which is really what we've been doing. So it's great that he's been punching through a lot of these uh, fail paradigms. I'm curious because I know we talked about this last year and we lamented the deep state and the shallow state as well. Trump's appointees to National Security Council. You got Mattis, you got Tillerson. Why is it that I seem to have noticed, and this is true on domestic policy as well, that Trump has seemed to move more in our direction, more of a conservative direction the last couple of months, even though the personnel is still there? What what do you see happening more politically inside the administration and why the president seems to be more on message than he was before. So, you know, in private discussions with uh, some former Trump people and some current Trump people, you get this sense that he is simply, especially when it comes to Mattis, Tillerson, and McMaster, who are more so in line with the foreign policy elite, Trump's strategy is not really coming from these people. It's coming from outside advisors, and it, it, it's coming from more of an instinctive approach um, that he's had before bringing these people into his orbit. Um, you have to think that he's consulting with guys like John Bolton and um, you know others outside the White House who really have an outside-the-box uh, foreign policy um, it's a strategy. And I, I wouldn't be surprised at all, you know, given... We, we saw that Dina Powell is resigning, um, interestingly, right after Trump made the Jerusalem decision. You know, you take that for what it's worth, and a, you, know, you can draw the parallels if you'd like. Um, but I, I, I see uh, you know, a near future where a lot of these Trump cabinet officials might find themselves on the way out, because when Trump is consistently uh, doing, I think, what I, you and I would say is the pro-America thing, then that it's against what they've wanted. Um, when it comes to, you know, Iran or Israel or, you know, a lot of the stuff that's going on in the Middle East. Uh, he's stuck on Afghanistan, unfortunately. But otherwise, you know, he's consistently um, made decisions that were opposite those of the um, advice of his cabinet members. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. We're approaching the one-year anniversary of the Trump administration in late January, 
Um, a lot of these people want to stay on for their legacy, particularly, it seems, Tillerson writing op-eds in the New York Times. Um, I don't know how that benefits the president, but it seems like a lot of these people are making legacy moves, and I wouldn't at all be surprised to see them on their way out very soon. You know, that, that that's a really good point, and one of the things that I think we got right from the beginning of Trump's presidency is when I told people that you don't have the ball in the end zone yet. You recovered possession, but you got to make the plays. And you got to understand that there's bad people around him. Most of his instincts are pretty good, um, but it's not going to happen on its own. And I think it's the outsiders. I mean, you know, he on the White House website, they post often some of our articles on chain migration. Now he's talking about chain migration. I think he listens to yep. some of us more than them, and that's actually a good thing. Um, I, I think where I was wrong in my prediction, I predicted once Ben in left the White House, I was like, oh, this is done with. You know, if he couldn't even make it there, this is moving far to the left. But I think some of the people around Bannon were right in thinking that they're going to have more influence on the outside. Um, and I think that's <clears throat> that's very evident, especially when Trump's instincts are on target and he understands an issue. I think where there's still a learning curve, like you mentioned with Afghanistan, there are certain issues I think straight up. Iran sucks. Like, he gets that. Jerusalem's the eternal capital of Israel, Jewish capital. He gets that. The problem is some of the other downstream um, effects of the former failed paradigms that he himself has addressed. Sometimes they're lost on him. Sometimes he just, you know, his instincts are right. He just doesn't know how to apply them. And I think Afghanistan, he understands that, wait a minute, what are we doing? And he even said it himself, it's against my better judgment. But as he noted just now, as we're talking, literally I'm seeing there's news, another soldier was killed there, four more injured. Here, again, you're talking about very painful. How do you come to a widow um Done your hat and say, ma'am, you know, your husband, your son was just killed fighting fill in the blank to take which ground on behalf of whom after 15 years. What are we doing there to what outcome that Taliban have no international reach like the Iranians do? There's nothing to do there. And yet it was announced that they're sending thousands more so much so much for just the initial surge. What are you hearing on Afghanistan? Is there any way to kind of turn around that ship? You, you would hope so. And and you, you're right. You know, we talk about this a lot that the president understands is coming to understand Washington better. And he understands that his core constituency will never be the members of the left. So that means that, um, you know, conservative Republicans are really the people that will get behind him if we see good strategy um, and good policy decisions being made by the president. On Afghanistan, that's a tough one because, again, you know, he had to break with the consensus of his cabinet on so many of these issues that you talked about. Israel, um, particularly the most recent one, you know, and it's just, it, it's, he's expending a lot of political capital on these moves. So again, he's, he recognizes that um, he has a particular base of support for if he makes the right moves. And we have to continue not acting as shills for the Trump presidency, um, as many on, in the social media sphere have. You know, that doesn't do anything to affect change, just to praise him. You need to really say, you know, this is a conservative policy and this is why. And, um, you know, when it comes to <laughs> Afghanistan, uh, we need to really hone in on the cost of the long war 
Um, you know, what have we gotten out of it? Because the president, of course, is a results-driven person, you know, with that business background. And he recognized before becoming president that, you know, we're not really doing anything. To, we're not gaining any ground in Afghanistan. You know, we've talked about this a lot. There's no territory to hold. There's no government to support that's pro-U.S. Um, we have no interest there other than, you know, when the terrorists come, we, we can kill the terrorists. But uh, it, it, Afghanistan is a total mess. And, uh, you know, if you don't see it now, uh, it, it's tough to hope for an optimistic future in which people will see, you know, the Afghanistan issue differently. Um, we've been there since 2001. There has been no pro-U.S. movements um, blossoming there. Unless we pay people off, then they'll maybe support us. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, militant Islam really has its grip on the country. And whatever we do there is not going to change that um, because of the way Afghanistan is fundamentally, you know, as a culture, as a system. And the good thing is, uh, hopefully, if we pull out of there and, you know, rededicate our efforts towards the, the evil that is the Iran regime, not necessarily with military power, but by other means, you know, we, we leave Afghanistan, we can free up resources. And the good thing is that, you know, barring any foreign enabler of Afghans, they pose no threat to us anyway. So, you know, we can leave whenever we want, and they're not going to be firing nuclear weapons from Afghanistan at us any time within <laughs> basically the next century. So, uh, you know, now is, now is a good time more than ever to leave the country. <laughs> the, the only thing so. they could fire at us are, are refugees and immigrants that we let in, and ironically, we're letting them in because we feel guilty that we're involved there. Um, unbelievable. Right. And it, it's just, it, it's amazing the contrast between Afghanistan and Iran, the choices to be made. Uh, we talk about this a lot. Again, the risk versus return matrix. Going beyond the rhetoric, the platitudes about, oh, are you for intervention or isolationism? Well, it's each theater. you got to make the right decisions with prudence and perspicacity to understand um, what is in our interest. And it, again, you look at Iran, they're the consummate enemy. They could be overthrown just by kicking them out the window when other people are doing it for us, no investment. Um, and then the outcome, we have a baseline understanding of what an outcome would look like. They're pre-Islamic history. Whereas with Afghanistan, you have neither or really none of those three elements. Um, you know, obviously the status quo, they're bad dudes there, but the Taliban are just a reflection of the people living there. They've always been like that. They always will be. Um, you're not going to change that. There's nobody who could unite the country because there is no country. And, you know, c contrast, um, you know, piping in on social media, some propaganda to undermine and diminish uh, a regime versus sending our guys on foot patrol in these mountain passes that could just be ambushed at any time to no end and you see that's what there's intervention and then there's intervention they're very right. different it's a risk versus a return matrix and and like you said we gotta um hold the administration to it because i think trump wants to do this 
I give them a lot of credit. Again, they've put up on their own web White House blog some of our articles that were tacitly even critical of the administration. I was laughing with some people. It was a, an article on immigration. I'll never forget. I was like, hey, you know, Trump needs to do more on this. And they put it up there because I think he wants to do it. Um, but of, on the outside, we got to be that guiding light. We're certainly going to be doing it at Conservative Review. We got Mark Levin's fired up about this Iranian issue. Make sure you've renewed your CRTV subscription. We're going to have a lot more coming on a wealth of issues. We're going to be expanding this podcast. Um, you want to read Jordan's articles again. Jordan, how do we follow you on social media? Yeah, so it's just my first name and last name at Jordan Chactel on Twitter. And uh, I post a lot about, I'm posting a lot about the Iranian stuff. We're uh, publishing a lot of content on Conservative Review as well on the Iran issue, and we're going to be constantly covering it um, until, hopefully, until the regime is gone. <laughs> so, absolutely, that. balls and strikes on on this issue. What we can be doing, and as well as, like I said, many many other domestic policy issues. Uh, you know, immigration and the insurance bailout, a vision for what immigration should look like, what healthcare should like. We, we are really going to double down on that. And as well as, by the way, if you guys have not caught my end of year article on Dirty Dozen, the 12 worst court cases of 2017, watch that because unfortunately judges have become commander in chief because January 1st was transgender day in the military that we now have to have castration there. So there's a lot to talk about trying to fit in this mouthful of stuff in just less than an hour. Um, but stay tuned. Welcome to our Westwood one audience. Looking forward to a great new year with great new insights, great new horizons, and hopefully success for our country to put America first. Thank you all for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.